This is Point of View, a podcast exploring today's digital landscape through a critical lens. Each episode, Gil Rosen, our Chief Marketing Officer at Amdocs, will interview leading authors, entrepreneurs, and experts to help listeners view the online world from a different vantage point and demystify some of your most burning questions. We're discussing everything from fast fashion to the psychology of the internet, underscoring it all with a forward-thinking perspective. Are you ready for the future? Let's get digital. Food is one aspect of human life that brings us all together. After all, eating is a universally human experience. And great food is one thing we can all, mostly, agree on. But have you ever stopped to wonder how that medium-rare steak arrived on your plate? Or the journey that your morning bagel took to reach your toaster? It's important to stay educated about the social, cultural, and environmental impacts of the food we eat every day. But many people are still in the dark about the global ecosystem of food. Today's guest, Dr. Erwin Adam, is a creative scientist and food futurist who combines a background in engineering, biology, and technology with his passion for exploring global eating futures. As founder and creative scientific director of Future Food Studio, Erwin leads multidisciplinary teams and strategic foresight, reimagining how we interact with food at every level. During this episode, Gil and Erwin discuss how we can reimagine the ways we interact with food, the history of the food ecosystem, and using technology to bring the food system into the modern age. Here's their discussion. So how we interact with food, what does that mean? At the most fundamental level, the ways that we have built our food systems, the ways that we have designed at least our contemporary and our modern ways of feeding one another sometimes could be viewed as optimized around the wrong data points. And so much of what we have today is legacy from the 1960s when we went through the green revolution and we really optimized around abundance. We just needed to get a lot of food really, really quickly. And we really didn't care how that happened. And so as a result, you know, we developed really incredible new varieties of grains and and rice and all these kinds of things. But that came at a a major expense where we started to have to use excessive water. We had to use all these chemical fertilizers. And that kind of, you know, backs us into the, the modern food system, which is really challenging and is driven by those sectors rather than the actual demand of food and what you know, is nutritiously needed by, by us as people. Um, and nutrition, not just being, you know, micronutrients and macronutrients, but also the experience of food and things that we love and enjoy. And, and that really brings our senses alive. And reimagining it means that we look at this entire ecosystem and say, okay, if we had to start from scratch with the available technologies, how would we do it? Is, is that- exactly. So when we're reimagining, we're really saying, hey, let's put all of this existing inertial mass of a food system to the side and really look at what makes sense today. And what is the challenge? I mean, many times, you know, if it works, leave it alone. What is it that is happening in the world that drives you or makes your mission important that you're saying, hey, we need to rethink it? Is, is it because that we're depleting resources or is it because of something else? 
Well, at the crux of it, like very, very relevant to today, we have global climate change. And global climate change is both a result of a lot of our agricultural practices, you know, something about 15% of all greenhouse gas emissions come from the agricultural sector. Um, and that's on par with transportation, so it's cars, trucks, all kinds of ways that we move things around the world. But also... I think you said something which I think I know the background for, but I want to make sure everybody understands. What you just said means that whatever comes outside the other end of a cow is, and all the cows in aggregation, right, is actually what's creating the CO2 emission, which is similar to cars, trucks, airplanes. That's, that's what it means. It's not, agriculture is a very high word. You mean like cows, excuse my language, farting. So that's a big part of it. You know, that's about a third of those agricultural emissions. But then just on the practices that we have by um, the decomposition of some of the biomass that happens because we're using a lot of annual plants, um, a lot of the, the, the ways that we treat our soil causes a mixture of NO2 to be released and also CO2. So okay. we get a lot of different greenhouse gases that are released in agriculture. But certainly uh, cows farting are a big part of it. So what's the science or what's the, the mechanism that is the change? What, what is it that we can do now that is different or better to actually reimagine or reconstruct this ecosystem? Well, I try to take like a much more holistic approach. And this is, I think, a really interesting moment in time where we're starting to recognize more and more that the things we consume, like the things that we're eating, are both impacting us as an individual, right? So, you know, we know that we are getting calorie counts on our packaging and we see the carbohydrates and fats. But we're also recognizing more and more that the food that we consume is impacting the world at large. And so agriculture is both a major contributor to global climate change, but also global climate change is changing the possibilities in agriculture, right? So these systems are very, very intertwined. You know, the, the problem is repeatedly presented that in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to have several more billion folks to feed on this planet. And if the climate is in very different condition, we might need to use different methodologies. Is the fact that the population is growing the reason? Because aren't the existing food systems actually geared towards it? Or are you saying, even if they're geared towards it, we are going to basically run the planet down therefore it's it's not even a it's not even a choice it's kind of a covid was just a promo to to the real big scary thing which is climate change right i, I heard some people say that if you think uh, you know covid was a scary wait for the big thing well covid has proven an interesting test of our systems right and what it proved is are two things one is that our systems aren't as robust as maybe we would have liked them to be and certainly we saw food systems that led to shortages of food. We saw distribution issues and it led to a rise of starting to understand what it means to have food sovereignty, right? Because we've come out of you know, the last 70 years of really um, globalization in, in terms of food and you know, not necessarily having independence of separate regions to feed themselves. And so you know, something like COVID really brought that to a head. But what COVID also brought to our attention is that we can change our behaviors very quickly, right? So there's always this kind of thinking that, oh no, it's so hard, everything moves so slowly, how do we change anything? Well, COVID forces us to change everything overnight. 
And it's pretty incredible. So we know now there's these two pressures of this. One is we can change rapidly. And the other is that the systems need to be changed. And so now moving towards uh, a world where global climate change is becoming more and more prominent, we're realizing that, yeah, we can actually do something about it. I read somewhere that you talk about, of course, the, the, the need to feed three more billion people and, and maybe insects and, and, and getting protein from insects being a, um, an interesting path towards that instead of the consumption of, of, and farming of, of meat. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So ultimately, protein production is like one of the major sources of uh, contributors to greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture. So that's exactly, as you said, cows passing methane gas uh, into the atmosphere, but then also all other animals like lamb, sheep, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And so as we have more and more of the developing world gaining an income, there is a larger demand for animal proteins. And as this demand increases, the pressure of livestock on the environment increases as well. And so there's a lot of interest in understanding how do we diversify our protein portfolios, right? So it's not necessarily just saying, let's eliminate meat completely, but it's saying, hey, how do we pull the pressure off that system and actually distribute it across multiple systems? And so that could be plant-based proteins, but then we also look for other sources. And so Uh, insects are one of the sources that have come online. You know, probably the last five years or so, there's been a significant investment in that space. What we found in general, though, is that consumer uptake hasn't been incredible, right? So people aren't super excited about it, at least in Western markets, where we do know that, you know, the World Health Organization indicated that, you know, more than 2 billion people eat insects as part of their daily diet already. That being said, something that has been interesting with insect protein is actually the incorporation within animal feeds. And so reducing the pressures of having to grow, you know, in America, like soy uh, and corn are being grown across, you know, hundreds of thousands of acres of land uh, in order to feed animals. And that land could be used to grow other food or it could be restored to its natural state if we remove that pressure and feed those animals insect-based proteins instead. That's, that's actually possible to feed a cow with insects, as, as an example? Absolutely. You can feed them all kinds of protein meals that are optimized for, for them. From a, from a CMO marketing perspective, I think I could think of no greater challenge. Uh, actually, a really cool challenge. I'm actually volunteering right now. If anybody's listening and thinks that um, I'm uh, talented enough to make the Western world like insects. That's one a hell of a, of a marketing challenge to take on. That's like uh, making a, like a, a shift, right? I mean, if you go in a, to a market in Thailand, they just, you know, so they, they wrap it for you and, and people eat it. Like probably we have to introduce it to kindergartens and, and that's where you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not, no, I'm, I'm not, I'm, I'm not suggesting anything yet. So let, let, let's try to fast forward to the more kind of maybe futuristic and technical side of, of your work about the personalization of food and the design of food for specific needs and requirements. What can you tell us about where this kind of field is, is going to? So I try to take like, you know, a 100,000 foot view of the system uh, when, when I kind of, you know, work through it and, and look at what's possible. What are the, the weak signals? What are the strong signals out there that are indicating change? 
Um, and so in the practice of foresight, that's exactly what we're doing. We're looking for what is happening in the environment, whether it's social or it's economic or it's political or it's cultural. And we say, hey, how do these things come together in order to create the future? And so there's kind of two different areas of the future. We have the near future and then kind of what I would refer to as the further future. Um, and the near future are things that, you know, are either kind of happening at this moment. Let's push it out to five, 10 years. And then further future is kind of everything beyond that. And in this ecosystem, we're really considering right now the questions of what is food? How do we produce food? How do we transform it? And then how do we experience it? And that's a really important piece not to forget. The food system doesn't end with bringing the food to the consumer. The food system ends with the consumer actually consuming it. And so right now we are really, really challenging ourselves with this question of what is food, right? And so you brought up insects just now, but we're looking for all different sources for producing food. And then obviously there's a lot of pushback on that too. Like, hey, is something that's chemically manufactured, is that food? Is that something that we want to have part of our system? You know, do we want to bring in laboratory grown meats into our system? So that fundamental question is really, really evolving right now and getting us to understand in our core what should be and should not be food. And then we start looking at the production side of it. And production kind of goes in multiple directions. And the way I view this is there's kind of a direction that looks at us having the ability to mitigate the impacts of climate change. And so we take all the different technologies that we have, whether it's synthetic biology, uh, you know, distributed ledger technologies or blockchain technologies, um, automation, robotics, artificial intelligence. We take all those technologies and we focus them on growing food the way that we really want to grow food today and the way that we, you know, pulls on our heartstrings. So, um, you know, growing crops on the field, but then being really kind to our soil, using regenerative techniques and methodologies in order to actually increase the health of that soil. And that's one direction for improving the abundance of food in a good way. And if we're willing to take the steps we need to take in order to mitigate global climate change, we can then really go down that path. The alternative is a world in which we can no longer grow crops the way that we grow crops today. And that's definitely going to require a lot of intervention by technology in order to get us to have the ability to feed our global populations. So, you know, suddenly we start looking at things as CRISPR technology or gene editing technology as something that could be viewed as heroic because we can overnight create new varieties of food to plant in the ground that could be responsive to climate change rather than having to take, you know, typically it takes 10 to 15 years to bring a new variety through a breeding program uh, onto the market. Uh, and then we look at things like automation and robotics would have to be employed. And so those are also, also good technologies for us in the regenerative space, but are also important technologies for us in terms of having to grow things in places where we never had to grow them before. Uh, when we look at the decimation of pollinators um, and we see bee populations, declining, suddenly we have to look at, hey, maybe we have to create robotic pollinators, right? What does it look like to have non-living pollinators that can then go and do what we need to do in order to produce our food? So this world suddenly takes more of a, like a science fiction bend to it. But what we're really fortunate is that 
as humans, we're quite resilient. And both these paths are actively being developed, right? And then, you know, we can kind of bookmark that other side with uh, lab-grown meat or cellular agriculture as well. You know, that's going to be a real choice. Do we as consumers believe that we have the right to eat meat and we must eat meat? So therefore, you know, if we don't have a climate that can support animal husbandry, then suddenly we have to grow things in a laboratory. And that's, you know, the market will decide what what makes sense. I think it's interesting that in my personal experience, although in a very humble manner, but also reading some some of your your writings and, and listening to what you, you you've been talking about, COVID has brought us back to basics. And people said, "Hey, I want to be able to grow X mm-hmm. in my garden." I mean, that's so basic because I might not be able to go to the supermarket, or I I want it fresh because it's not going to come from wherever it comes from, which is a very fundamental back to basics village type of uh, of sustainability. While we have to use technology to now create food in a different way. We have to engineer food. We have to, I don't know if you if you like this analogy, Nespresso food, right? So we kind of have a capsule, we press a button, and out of this whatever thing comes out, uh, the nutrients we need in order to to eat. I don't know if we enjoy it, but we definitely can eat it. I actually think the latter, meaning the, the, the not the village, I think that's nice, but on a global scale... I think science and super science will have to win. So I, I, I do see this as really accelerating towards almost like what you call science fiction type of things where we, we grow meat in a, in, a, in a manufactured way, not through animals. And are you an optimist that something that is actually really going to unfold in, in the near future? Or are we fighting a, like a really tough uphill battle against mega industries whose only purpose is to have, you know, produce more money. Is that like the military industrial complex? We have the food industrial complex. So I think you touched on quite a number of things in there. I will challenge you directly on the ability of people to grow their own food. I think that is one of the greatest things that we have witnessed during this pandemic is that growing your food is not just a right, It's not just a responsibility, it's also an obligation. And we're recognizing how that also builds resilience within a food system to have people also producing their food. And my biggest challenge to that is what percentage of the country is living on minimum wage? What can someone actually afford to do with their lives on minimum wage? There's no way that you can tell me that someone working in a fast food restaurant or working as a clerk in like, you know, that giant shop that their time is better spent standing there and flipping burgers or doing whatever they're doing over there than being in their own garden, growing food for themselves. And so that's part of what food sovereignty does is it creates the ability for people to care for themselves in a different way. And that is actually where I think that the industrial complex is acting is that it's really saying like, hey, no, you can't have a connection to food. You're not able to make your own food. Don't worry about that. We're going to feed you whatever mixture of crap we're going to produce. And you go do the menial labor that we have petitioned the government to keep really, really cheap. So there's a bunch of different forces acting here. Fundamentally, though, I think everybody has a responsibility and an obligation to the food system in some way, shape or form. That being said, these questions about how you know, scientific developments are going to transform the food systems. 
I think those are very real. And what we're seeing is how it plays out in the marketplace. You know, where it's both fair and not fair is that there are millions, if not billions of dollars being thrown at kind of a lot of these emerging technologies. And so there's a big marketing push, right? And the education piece around food is really challenging, but we have a choice. We could educate people about having food sovereignty, or we could educate people about just shifting their demand to another mass manufactured product. And I'm not saying whether that's good or bad, but I think we do need to view the system for what it is. And it is a very capitalist system that functions off profits. I fundamentally do not believe that food is a space for people to be profiteering. I believe food is a fundamental right of every individual on this earth. And so when we create these complexes, these industrial complexes that have undermined people's ability to have independence and sovereignty over their own food, for me, that becomes very problematic. And that's an issue that actually is separate from the developments and evolutions of technology that need to happen and, and are happening. I want to challenge your challenge to an extent, because I do agree with your response, but I, you know, being realistic, you know, not, not to go, I'm, I'm not in any way supporting the, the, the capitalistic industrial complex, but I'm saying, don't we then have to completely re-engineer urbanization and everything? Because if you have the right where that, suppose I agree with that you should have access and responsibility and obligation to grow your food. You know, I, uh, single at the moment and I, I, sometimes I look at my trash can, I think, wow, I, I produce so much trash on my own, which is pretty amazing. Mm -hmm. And uh, if I had to grow my food and, and I, I'm, I'm vegetarian. So even just the sheer amount of vegetables that I, eat and, and 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 everything for me to sustain my minimum dietary needs that's that's like a day job so while i agree with your theory it just doesn't scale unless i live in a farm but where would i work or when would i work more right it, it's it's contradicting and then we're back into the so it sounds like so and this is like you know and we we can get into this i don't, I don't know if you want to but like Let's there's a lot of it. mythology around agriculture and what it actually means you know off an acre of land you can feed you know 50 to 100 people year-round we're not talking about a lot of land um, we're talking about small units of land that are being used in an efficient way and we know that hand scale is the best scale because it really does maintain the soil integrity that allows for increased yields across everything that we produce, but also you physically farming yourself. I'm not saying you have to be a farmer. You growing your own food could also be taking part in what we call a CSA or a community supported agriculture initiative, right? So it's like really putting your money where your mouth is and saying, hey, I want a better system. And then you're directly say supporting a farmer. Who okay. then you're getting your food from. You're not looking to feed you know in america food is often imported i'm up in upstate new york surrounded by farmland and yet when i go to the grocery store i'm seeing so much produce that's coming from mexico and california and you know that is an issue of regional food sovereignty we're having an issue where there is an abundance of agricultural land and folks are not understanding that we have an obligation to feed ourselves in this place and not have an independence on every other place around the world. Do you think it'll happen? I'm watching it happen. 
that was one of the incredible pieces of the pandemic was, you know, this resurgence of the equivalent of the Victory Garden, but also bringing people closer into contact with land again has been really, really important. And so for myself, you know, I've had the privilege of living on land for this past year. Normally I'm on the road, I'm traveling all over the world, horrible contributor to global climate change myself. And, you know, one of my goals pre-COVID, interestingly enough, was to reduce my travel by 50%. Uh, in 2020, which certainly that You doubled your target. (laughs) I I really, you know, the shareholders report is really great, (laughs) inadvertently. But that being said, when you bring folks in closer connection with land, you bring them in closer connection with their food and where it comes from, their brain transforms. You know, and when I go to my my actual practice, so my practice is like a, a mixture of a creative practice, a scientific practice, a foresight practice, a, a fictional practice, right? So I'm really looking at these systems and of, of technologies and humans and and society and you know the environment and really seeing how do these things come together. And to get onto people's mindsets, you do need these moments, these little moments where they have an opportunity to shift their consciousness. And this last year really has been a moment like that where suddenly things that were taken for granted and, you know, kind of just were playing out in the subconscious to become front of mind. And the, the, the story I kind of share all the time is, and this is why I started my studio and the reason why I do the work I do is, you know, there, there's a neighborhood in Toronto where I, I did my, my PhD and I, my studio's based and there's all these little shops. And so one of the most popular things to get is called a Jamaica patty. It's essentially this pastry with some meat inside of it. And you would just see people walking down the street, like smashing them, just like, you know, eating them one after another. And they have no clue what they're eating, like legitimately no clue. And I think that's an opportunity to have a person like turn on their brains for a second and be like, Hey, do I actually choose to not be conscious of what I'm consuming or have I just kind of taken it for granted and never even made the choice? And so if given the choice, will I turn on my consciousness? And so this has been a moment like that, a moment of pause where we can suddenly say, hey, like, do I actually want to care about this or not? Because it's totally valid for people to not care about it as well. You know, if people are busy, they have a mortgage, they have a job, they have all these other things going on. Absolutely. Someone might opt out. But I bet you, if given the choice, folks would really choose to opt in. It's amazing how I, uh, no matter which topic I happen to talk about, Corona has been, and you use those words and I'll repeat them, a consciousness shifting event that has really reset people's minds in many ways. And if we try to really kind of jump into the future, right? So not five to 10 years, but 20 years from now, if you had to describe if everything that you wanted to happen would happen, from food production to how we farm to how people live. Give me the highlights of how how that looks like. Yeah. So, you know, one of the directions that I think we're gearing towards is what I'm calling the connected green revolution. And essentially it starts looking at all those different aspects of what is food, how we produce food, how we transform food, and then ultimately how we experience food. And it really connects them all together. And the driving force behind all of it really is the the individual and the consumer. And we're seeing in some parallel industries that continual monitoring systems are becoming more and more available. 
right? So we can already see people have systems inside them for monitoring blood glucose levels uh, or their heart rates or whatnot. And as we develop these systems further and further, and we have the ability to embed technologies within an individual that can then monitor all their macro and micronutrients, suddenly we have a very, very powerful tool for personalized nutrition. So imagine the power of that when you walk into, say, a pressed juice shop, right? And you're making that, you know, $10, $15 value proposition uh, exchange to buy a juice that you're doing purely based on emotions. Do you want the green one, the red one, the purple one? Now you'd actually be able to look at that menu and have the information and data available to you, say, on your phone or whatever device we're using 20 years out from now. And you would know precisely what would be the best choice to make for your body in that moment. And so that becomes a really important point because suddenly if I understand the current physiological state of an individual at all moments and I can start understanding the inputs that they need, we can combine that with machine learning, artificial intelligence in order to also incorporate their preference data and preference information. That then starts giving me a clear understanding of the demands that that individual has on the system. And so you can imagine then aggregating that kind of data and looping it back to, say, a grocery store. And suddenly a grocery store no longer just becomes a place where we're storing food and inventorying food. It can also become a place where we're producing. So if we see how vertical farming is coming online, even things like cellular agriculture, um, you know, if we were actually able to print meat uh, in the future, suddenly a grocery store could really become a hub of food production that services the community that's immediately around it. And then if we move out even further from that system, we can start looking at how a regional survey of individual physiological states and demands combined with predictive technologies using AI and machine learning can actually start showing us how the broader food system needs to respond. So imagine suddenly you have a shift in your diet, say you're, you've gone vegan or this whole community has gone vegan, that then can ladder up through the entire system, allowing for the system to produce the food that you need when you need it, and eventually can actually connect to the farms themselves. And suddenly the farms, because we're looking to have low impact, we don't want to use heavy machinery on our soils. Um, we want to use fertilizers in the most efficient ways using the latest in precision farming technologies. We would have swarms of you know, little robots, drones, actually going out and tending the fields. And so it's actually this communion between humans and robots and other automated systems that can allow for really, really beautiful agricultural practices that also allow for more efficiency within the system. Because again, with the incorporation of machine learning and AI, suddenly we can be producing the crops that will best make it to the consumer without any waste, because we know that know, nearly 50% of all food produced goes to waste. And so we can have a lot more efficiency in getting that food to the consumer, but also we're getting the consumer what they actually want when they want it. So you start imagining this kind of very holistic system where we are now having this embedded technology that at first we think is a physiological monitor, but really is becoming this 
human earth interface, right? Where suddenly the needs of my human body are driving the, the, the tendencies of the earth in order to produce the food that we need in order to kind of close this system. That's actually, so that would be kind of this like broader connected green revolution uh, that I would envision is really understanding how basically from soil to soil, all the components can be connected in a, a very real and beautiful way. Human to earth interface. That's a beautiful uh, term. I think that was a really great way to, uh, to maybe wrap everything up. It's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much for having me. Super interesting. I think it's profound. Anybody listening to this and can contribute to this effort, I, I definitely will. Currently, I, I only grow my uh, mint <laughs> for tea. <laughs> I will try harder, I promise. It's been a pleasure and super insightful. So thank you. Thank you so much for having me. While most people have been aware of the physical health impacts of food for years now, most people are just beginning to wake up to the effects our food can have on the environment. Erwin mentioned that agriculture is a major contributor to global climate change. But climate change is also a major influence in the agricultural space. As a result, the relationships within the food ecosystem are complex, intertwined, and dependent on a variety of factors. In 20 or 30 years, The Earth will have several billion more mouths to feed, and will likely have even more pressing climate change issues to contend with. While this may seem like a hopeless fate, Erwin pointed out that one thing the pandemic brought to light was how quickly and relatively easily the world can shift its behaviors when presented with new information. We all play a role in changing the world for the better, and the answer could be right under your nose or on your plate. Erwin. Thank you for taking the time to share your point of view. Thanks for listening to Point of View, a podcast by Amdocs. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to share it with your network, subscribe, and leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Stay tuned for our next episode. We'll see you next time. Bye.